0: Hello and welcome to episode 328 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from Glasgow is a quite dreadful double murder, which caused genuine fear on the streets of the city. Now, if you head to my YouTube channel, just search UK True Crime Live, you will see my video from the murder scenes of today's crimes. Please subscribe whilst you are there so you don't miss any new videos. Come on, you know it's going to be at least as good as a lot of that rubbish we all watch on YouTube, me too. No adverts today, so let's set some context for today's story with our never copied guest the month and year game. Number one in the UK charts was Pastor Dutchy from Musical Youth, and in the US it was John Cougar, <laughs> Cougar, Cougar, with Jack and Diane. In Australia, the top-selling single was Survivor with Eye of the Tiger. I'm sure you know it's a theme song from Rocky III. And my interesting fact, which is it was used after Queen refused permission to use Another One Bites the Dust as the theme song from this Sylvester Stallone film. In the news this month, the film Gandhi, directed by Richard Attenborough and starring Ben Kingsley and John Gielgud, premiered. The Mary Rose, the flagship of Henry VIII, sank in 1545, was raised from the Solent just off the coast of Portsmouth. The Ford Sierra was launched as a replacement to the long-running Cortina. Sinn Féin won their first seats on the Northern Ireland Assembly, with Gerry Adams winning the Belfast West seat. And just to make you feel old, boxer Nicola Adams and footballer Jermaine Defoe, now retired, were born this month. So did you get the month and year? It was October 1982. Year out again, hey? On the 4th of October 1982, the Glasgow Herald newspaper carried a piece urging Glasgow's taxi drivers to install a flashing red light on the roof of their taxi to be used in the event that they were attacked by a passenger. This came as detectives stepped up their search for the killer of taxi driver... 36 year old Catherine McCord, who'd been found murdered in the boot of her taxi in Brayside Terrace in Cambersland, which is to the southeast of Glasgow, two days earlier. The Glasgow Taxi Owners Association chairman said that this had last been considered in the 60s after another taxi driver, David Walkenshaw, had been murdered. He continued that by law, drivers weren't allowed to carry defensive weapons. But as the number of attacks on drivers was increasing, he said, I always used to have a spanner near at hand. Now I have something else, but I'm not saying what. Of the 1,400 hackney cab drivers working in Glasgow at the time, just 25 or maybe 30 were women, but the number was increasing. The advice given to the women taxi drivers was not to pick up any fares from the street at night, and only to answer radio calls. Meanwhile, police made another appeal for assistance in catching the killer of Cathy McCord. She'd been found after her husband, Eddie, had become worried when she hadn't returned home as planned. The police and fellow taxi drivers looked for her, and her body was eventually found in the boot of her taxi, where she'd been stabbed through the back and the neck, and then three times in her chest. Detectives believed it was a motiveless crime. It certainly seemed to be. And they appealed for any information about a man who'd been seen hailing a taxi on the main street in Canbertsland between 7.30 and 8pm near the bingo hall to come forward. They said this man was in his early 30s, 5.10 of tidy appearance, and wore a chain around his neck. It was not clear if Kathy had picked up this passenger or not and the police appealed more generally for any other information that could help the inquiry. A forensic search of the taxi only showed the fingerprints of Kathy and her husband, so whoever had carried out the murder, it appeared, had been forensically aware enough to clean their fingerprints from the taxi. Remember, this is the pre-DNA days. Detectives began to look more into Kathy's life for any clues for why anyone would have a motive to kill her. And they soon discovered that Kathy had a very interesting background, including spending time in prison. Could this be connected to her murder? Nine years before, when she was 27, Cathy felt very despondent with her life. And she didn't know how she and her husband Eddie could ever escape the Glasgow housing estate where they lived. And when the couple were told they wouldn't be able to have the children they both wanted, it changed their attitude to life. They decided they weren't going to settle for what was seemingly their place in life. They were going to do good, big things. At the time, Cathy was working for the Scottish Daily Express, surrounded by people who'd worked there their whole lives. Cathy's view was, well, good luck to them if that's what made them happy until retirement. But Kathy wanted more than that. She wanted a lovely home, cars, holidays and a more luxurious lifestyle. Then in 1973, the dream seemed to be a little more likely to happen as she was promoted to deputy competitions clerk with the new head of competitions seemingly being a kindred spirit. This was 36-year-old Colin Hunter. He was an accountant who'd worked in a variety of middle management positions. He knew that this was the most senior role he would ever get. But like Cathy, he wanted more from life, especially for his wife and his two children. Do you remember the spot the ball competitions where you had to mark on a coupon where you felt the football was in a, in a picture? They were huge back in the 70s and 80s. And the one run by the Scottish Daily Express was a really big one, offering life-changing amounts for winners of the prize. OK, so not quite National Lottery life-changing amounts, but towards the end, up to the equivalent of not far off a million pounds today. And Kathy felt in her role that she could manipulate the competition so she could get a share of the money. Although Colin Hunter was initially unsure, he soon joined in with a syndicate which included Kathy and her husband Eddie. The plan was a straightforward one. The syndicate found a suitable winner from their circle of friends and that winner would keep a small amount of the prize, with the rest going back to the syndicate, especially to Cathy and Colin as they took the main risks as they had the key jobs in the scam. It was almost, I've read, like a Robin Hood (laughs) scenario where Colin and Cathy almost gave the money to people who they felt really needed it, a good cause, you know, taking from the rich to give to the poor. From March 1974 until April 1977, Kathy and Colin Hunter fixed 69 place-to-ball competitions on the newspaper, making themselves a really decent amount of cash. Kathy bought a new house for her and Eddie, in the more affluent suburbs of Glasgow. She bought a new taxi for her husband, a car for herself, and she spent money on holidays, trips to London, and was still able to save a decent amount. Colin too had a large sum in the building society, a new car, and was in the process of buying himself a nice new bungalow when the inevitable happened, and they were caught. So how did this happen? Well, 19-year-old James McCready was chosen as one of the 69 bogus winners when the competition was fixed. He was picked to win as he needed money for a a good cause to pay a fine for a boys under 13 football team locally that he helped to run. But when he wasn't asked to return the rest of the cash immediately, he bought his grandma a new TV, as you do, and then he spent every single penny of the rest of the money. Cathy, Colin and the syndicate were seriously unimpressed and McCready went to the police when he was visited by three thugs hired by the syndicate to reclaim their money. The thugs apparently threatened to chuck him in the Clyde, wearing a concrete overcoat. What do you think about this? Look, I know the argument is that you can't be seen sometimes for people to take advantage of you. But I think if it was me, I might just have let that one go, wouldn't you? Who knows? Anyway, that's what happened and that's why they got caught. The syndicate all faced the courts And Kathy McCord was jailed for three years along with her boss Colin Hunter after both admitted fixing the competition for their own gain and stealing almost £150,000 from the newspaper group. So back to today's story almost 10 years on from that date. Detectives wondered whether Kathy's death could be connected to this fraud. Had it been someone who felt they'd been wronged in some way or even organised crime who targeted her. But as we have heard, it was mainly friends of Cathy and the others in the syndicate who were involved, so this avenue was eventually ruled out by detectives. So what else could have been the motive? Was there something else in Cathy's life that was unknown to them? She hadn't been sexually assaulted? Could it just have been a random attack by a passenger she'd picked up that evening? Maybe a dispute about the fare. There were two things in particular that were worrying detectives and they thought could be important. Firstly, to actually put Kathy's body in the boots with the meter still running didn't seem the act of a random passenger in a dispute over a couple of pounds for a fare. And inside Cathy's taxi, her inhaler, a cigarette lighter and her car keys had been well, they seem to be positioned in a straight line on the driver's seat. Did this almost suggest the ritualistic element of the killing? Detectives were unsure of this, yet, as they set about trying to find Cathy's killer. But despite numerous appeals and all the efforts of the police, they couldn't make the breakthrough they were looking for. And then on the 3rd of December, just two months later, there was another body found less than a mile away in the grounds of West Coates Primary School in Camberslang. This time, 48-year-old midwife Elizabeth Walton was found strangled at the very school that her young daughter attended. Elizabeth had been out for dinner with a friend in George Square in the centre of Glasgow the night before, and she was planning to make the short trip back to Camberslang by train where her eldest daughter, Anne, was going to pick her up. This was, of course, the pre-mobile phone days. And when she tried to call her daughter from a payphone in the restaurant, the line was engaged. So Elizabeth and her friend walked to the station, thinking they would see another phone box to call her daughter. But they didn't. And when they got to the station, the train was ready to go, and so they boarded for the short 10 minutes or so journey back to Camberslang. As they both just had short walks home, the friends said their goodbyes at the station at just after 11pm and began their separate walks back to their houses. But Elizabeth didn't make it home. She was attacked on the way, with the initial assault coming from behind. I wonder if she was aware she was being followed. and Was she scared or was she trying to escape her attacker? Or was it totally out of the blue? But thankfully, in a way, it's likely this initial assault rendered her unconscious. And she was then carried by her attacker to Wasteland, near West Coast Primary School, where she was stabbed repeatedly all over her body. Her bra was forced into her mouth and she was strangled with string. Once Elizabeth was dead, her killer stripped her naked and then mutilated her body, wrists and legs with a knife, described by the police as symbolic and ritualistic wounds. When she was found by Elizabeth's side lay her clothes, carefully tied in neat knots, and they were laid out in a line. The same way that her clothes were lined up immediately linked this case to the nearby recent murder of Cathy McCord. Once again, the words don't convey the savagery, the sheer savagery of this attack. Poor Elizabeth on her way home from Dinner with a friend on what was just an ordinary evening like so many others before. And the next day Elizabeth's friend was woken up by her son to the news that her pal Elizabeth hadn't made it home from the station the night before and it was shortly afterwards that she heard the terrible news that she was dead. Detectives were soon convinced that Elizabeth had been killed by the same person who had murdered Cathy due to a number of similarities as well as the ritualistic elements of the crimes. Both had died in a dreadfully violent attack. In both cases, a knife was used by a left-handed person to inflict wounds. Neither woman had been sexually assaulted, and both were killed within less than a mile of each other. And the real fear was that after two seemingly motiveless attacks, there was a very real possibility that this person would attack again soon. The police needed to launch a huge investigation and they did just that, carrying out door-to-door inquiries and flooding the area, talking to local people and looking for that key breakthrough that had eluded them after Cathy's murder. They also set up an incident caravan just where Elizabeth's body was found. The biggest team of police the region had seen in years It took only three days for their first breakthrough. A local man approached a caravan saying that he thought that he had information which could help the investigation. This man was 24-year-old local forklift truck driver in Skula. He was clearly a well-brought-up young man and told how he'd been walking past the school at about 11pm on the night before Elizabeth was killed and he'd seen a suspicious man hiding in the bushes. He gave a brief description, but due to the situation, he was unable to provide too much detail, as you'd expect. But the more he talked, the more officers became concerned by him and wondered if he'd been in some way involved in the two murders. He told police he'd been home by 11pm on the night that Elizabeth was killed, meaning that he couldn't have been involved. But when his mum was asked, she clearly recalled that he hadn't been home until 1am, a a full two hours later. In fact, she recalled the evening clearly, as when he hadn't come home by 1am, she had gone out in her car looking for him, as she always did when he was late, and she found him walking along the street. He told her that he'd been with a friend and then had been in the park thinking things through, he said. So why the discrepancies? His mum also told them that her son had been at home with her and her husband on the night in October when Cathy was killed. But this isn't what he told police. Schuyler was questioned again, formally this time, and he changed his story again. One time saying he'd been with a friend and then retracting this, saying he'd actually invented this story. Now, as we know, that's not the sort of line that is going to build trust with investigating officers. But Schooler's mum and dad were not happy at all. They thought their son was being looked at as a suspect for something he clearly hadn't done and his dad wrote a letter of complaint to the chief constable. His mum was more direct and she went to the instant caravan, she barged her way in to confront the lead detectives and protest that her son was clearly innocent. In an angry outburst, she said at one point, You'll be blaming him for that taxi driver next. But while his parents were complaining, other witnesses had come forward and identified him as the man some had seen running at pace past the shopping centre in the centre of Camberslang shortly after Elizabeth had been killed. Now Schooler was an interesting character when detectives looked into him. He came, if you can excuse my daily mailism from a good family with every opportunity. But he did very poorly in school. He was known for making up stories, he was a loner, and he also suffered with his mental health, particularly with bouts of depression. His parents had been concerned enough by his behaviour to get help for their son, and he had been treated by a psychiatrist. But he'd never been in any trouble before. And would someone like Schula be capable of two such violent murders of local women. The police needed more information and were granted a warrant to search Schooler's bedroom, where they found a pair of trousers with hairs on them that matched a synthetic fur collar on Cathy McCord's jacket. There was also fur that matched the fur from Elizabeth's coat, and some of the fauna where Elizabeth's body had been left was also found on his clothes. They also found that the draw cord was missing from the anorak that he wore to work and detectives believed that this cord had been used to strangle Elizabeth. His anorak was missing and Schooler couldn't satisfactorily explain why. A search of local shops and markets couldn't find a similar piece of cord and detectives were convinced this is what had been used to kill Elizabeth. All this information collectively was enough for Schooler to be charged with the murder of Elizabeth Walton. And detectives also had two witnesses, who had seen a man leave Kathy's taxi on the night that she was murdered, almost certainly her killer. And both positively identified Schooler as that man, so he was charged too with the murder of Kathy McCord. His trial in May 1983 took place at Glasgow High Court and lasted just two weeks. During which schooler continued to protest his innocence at the two murders, and he showed no remorse. he explained in his evidence how he believed he was the fool guy for the incompetent police who had assaulted him in custody as they tried to get him to confess to the crimes during the trial. He looked strangely uninterested, even when an expert witness diagnosed him as a psychopath. The only time there was any reaction was when the same doctor said that he was sexually impotent. Now jurors saw a very different man as he looked up with clear anger and protest in his eyes. Maybe this was because his tearful fiancé was in court for the trial. It was a really difficult two weeks for friends and families of the two victims as well as the jury, as the horrific details of the murders were revealed and very graphic pictures were shown. At the end of the trial, the jury found him guilty of both crimes, by majority for Cathy's murder and unanimously for Elizabeth's. And sentencing him to 20 years in prison, the judge said, I consider you an extremely dangerous young man. And one senior police officer also described him as an evil, emotionless murder machine. I think it'd be hard to disagree with those sentiments. But the sentence seemed very lenient for these murders, and he was in fact released in 2003. Cathy's widow, Eddie, was incandescent with anger by this decision. In a newspaper interview at the time, he told how he had complained to the parole board that he should not be released as there was a real risk he would offend again, but he was ignored. Eddie said, This man killed my wife. He should never have been allowed out as he will surely kill again. No woman is safe when he is around. During the trial he showed no expression of remorse or concern for the consequences of his actions. He used to sneer, chew gum and joke with the police officers in the dock. This is a man who killed because of the publicity and notoriety it would bring him. He wanted his 15 minutes of fame and he would kill again. He has finished his sentence, but the families of his victims are left with a life sentence. We will take this to our graves. This monster has his whole life to look forward to. All we are left with is a grave to tend in a cemetery. Strong words. And before his release, it transpired that Schooler had been allowed out at weekends to prepare him for release, something the authorities neglected to tell the families of the victims. Eddie commented, We weren't told about this either. The first we heard was when friends spotted him in Camberslang. Wow, how shocking, imagine that. And following his release, remember when he was released, he was only in his mid-40s, Schooler moved in with his sister in Bothwell, Lanarkshire, just a few miles from the scene of the two murders. One newspaper doorstepped him on the week of his release when Schooler opened the door, refused to comment and closed the door on reporters. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Two terrible crimes and of course our thoughts go out to the friends and families of Elizabeth Walton and Kathy McCord. I'm also astonished that Schooler was released from prison so soon to enjoy the life that he took from two innocent victims. But as far as I can tell, it would appear he hasn't re-offended in the last 20 years, since he's been a free man, if he's still alive that is. What is he now, in his mid to late 60s? But going back to his crimes, there are still plenty of questions that remain unanswered. Why did he choose Cathy and Elizabeth? Was it totally random? Was there any significance to the ritualistic elements of the murders? It feels significant, but but was it? Why did Schouler feel that need to go to the police caravan and tell them that he'd seen a mystery man on the night of Elizabeth's murder? Like so many people we've heard about on this podcast, was he playing a game? Was he watching? Was he trying to show he was more intelligent than the police and he could outfox them? Or was he simply just trying to divert attention from him? And without his intervention, would the police have caught him? And would he have faced justice for the murders? And if they hadn't arrested him when they did, would he have killed again? I think he probably would, don't you? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please just head to the Facebook group where there are almost 90,000 of us who share your interest in UK true crime and we discuss it 24-7, 365 days a year. I think there were 17 new threads on Christmas Day 2022. And to support the show and immediately access over 50 full-length bonus episodes, please join our community at Patreon. A huge thank you to the new members this week. That is Jenny Clare, Kim, Jems O'Shea, Patrick Evans, a name I better spell, A-Z-H-T-X-N, and Claire O'Mara. Thank you all so much for your support. It is so appreciated. So why don't you join us and support me and the show for as little as £1 per month and you can cancel any time just head to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UK True Crime. And don't forget to subscribe to YouTube. Just search UK True Crime Live. Okay, so no tears, but it's that time of the week when we say goodbye. So until the UK's 37th most popular UK True Crime podcaster returns next week, if you want to fill in some time, I hear the kings of Leon are on tour again, so that's certainly one to swerve. Stick to the capital of the north, the real capital of the north, Rochdale, where delights always await. Well, on that bombshell, until we speak again, please do take it easy. (laughs) And despite the others, it's always the others, we know it's the others. Stay classy and cheerio for now.